welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Kalechi Wright and Courtney Carr. Kalechi is a full-time doctoral student at the University of Kansas in the School of Social Welfare. She has expansive clinical experience in mental health with BIPOC communities. Her research focuses on immigration, criminal justice, and the criminalization of immigrants. Courtney is a third-year doctoral student at the University of Kansas and a professor of practice in the School of Social Welfare. She has a lengthy practice background in community mental health, mental health, and private practice, with an emphasis on trauma. Her research focuses on how black men have survived social isolation in the U.S. We talk about their article, co-authored with Dr. Becky Aiken, The Whitewashing of Social Work History, How Dismantling Racism in Social Work Education Begins with an Equitable History of the Profession published in an open-access special double issue of Advances in Social Work. This article should be required reading in all social work programs. It is an interrogation of how social work history, what gets to be told as history, who tells it, what gets valued, what's considered evidence, what's considered professional, who is considered a social worker, all of it is racist and whitewashed. They talk about how social work history often focuses on social work being created by privileged white women who helped the poor and oppressed, but does not talk about black social welfare leaders and community organizers and activists who did this work in their own communities and beyond, and who should be held up as social work and social welfare leaders and founders. This inaccurate history portrays white people as saviors and black people as passive receivers. To continue to teach this whitewashed history perpetuates white supremacy, which has serious consequences for social work students, faculty, social workers, and especially communities where we practice. As Kalechi and Courtney explain, we need an accurate telling of history so that our foundation is solid and our present and future are built on that foundation, rather than furthering racism and inequity. We need to honor the legacy of black social work and social welfare leaders and teach about the critical theories, knowledge, approaches, practices, work that they and others have done and continue to do to impact communities in the social work profession. And always remember and focus on the communal nature of the black community and how black social work and social welfare movements are in that same communal tradition. We also talk about racial justice work for educators and practitioners, who should be doing this work, who shouldn't be expected to do this work, DEI committees, syllabi, and so much more. I could say so much more about what we discussed, but I'd rather stop here and get you into the interview so you can hear directly from Kalechi and Courtney. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. 
Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve social, racial, economic, and political justice, local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. In 2022, they will continue their ongoing series, Eyes on Abolition, that explores abolitionist practice and as a critical framework to bring about change, and invite you to join them in April when they host Becoming Abolitionist author, Derricka Purnell. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey, Courtney. Hey, Kalechi. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know you both are super busy. Um, really want to jump right into your article from the Advances in Social Work Double Issue, Dismantling Racism in Social Work Education. Your article is fire. Um, it is phenomenal. We're going to link it in the show notes so people can check it out. So the whitewashing of social work history, how dismantling racism in social work education begins with an equitable history of the profession. There's a lot to discuss, so I'm going to put it on to you two. Like, where do you want to start? Um, I think we can start I, I, with kind of how the concept came up and, um, you know, the direction, um, you know, just kind of where, where the origins of it started. Sounds good. And I should add that Dr. Becky Aiken um, is the third author on this article, um, and she was supposed to be here, but it didn't. That part didn't work out. So we're super grateful to her as well. Yes, yeah. Um, so really, uh, kind of how I got the concept, and um, last year, and this is all kind of in the midst of the pandemic. So as you could imagine, I think a lot of our brains are swimming in the midst of all of the shifts and changes. And Courtney and I are in the midst of the doctoral program together. And um, one of the things that I was noticing um, was is jumping in and learning deeper theories surrounding social work and the history of social work and seeing the gaps in uh, BIPOC voices. And um, especially, you know, obviously, you know, Courtney and I both identifying and identifying as BIPOC, you know, when you are from a community that you inherently know your own resiliencies, um, ethnically, and you know, the inner workings, though it might not be empirically tested, right? And it might not be uh, by mainstream society accepted in historical books. Um, it's challenging when you're hearing um, a lot of the ethnic perspectives historically that you represent, not in history. And um, and that's something I felt really passionate about, seeing the way that social work frames early founders, discusses early founders, seeing how these people won Nobel Peace Prizes and, you know, but not seeing, well, where, where are the, where's the emphasis on the resiliencies historically on how people of color have survived um, evil, really, you know? And so uh, that probably really fueled my passion towards looking at, well, how do we excavate these voices? Um, because continuously teaching, you know, Courtney's professor practice, and I, I teach in our social work program too, and um, continuously reinforcing this narrative as if social work was founded by these white women who were these great heroes and 
um, you know, uh, and reinforcing that to, to new students, it really felt like we were we were really furthering white supremacy, you know, and not incorporating the voices of BIPOC communities that, again, have been resilient, have endured. They didn't get Nobel Peace Prizes for it. You know, they didn't get recognition for it. And so um, that really fueled the passion to write something that would um, challenge history, challenge social work history to um, revise how we view it and stop perpetuating the same narrative over and over again. Um, as if BIPOC communities were these receivers and these white sacrificers came in and helped us. And now we have social work, right? So um, that really was kind of what, what started it all. And then I invited uh, Dr. Aiken and Courtney in and um, you jumped in and here you have the manuscript. <laughs> I think for me to add on, like when Kalechi asked, you know, if I would be interested in, in joining and writing this, I was like, yeah, but for me, I, I come with a little bit different experience. And Kalechi and I talk about this, you know, both of us identifying as, you know, Black or African American, but Kalechi has connection to, uh, you know, culture that I don't have connection to, Kalechi's first generation. And whereas, you know, I identify as Black American, my parents are Black American, I don't necessarily have connection to, like, culture other than American culture. And so like considering that, like I'm coming in from a different lens with a, you know, social work education and none of these things have ever been taught. And it's interesting that coming into like doctoral education is the first time that it's like, oh, let me begin to like actually question like this history that we've been taught. Let me actually begin to look into this history and, and determine what may be different than what I've been taught. So for me, it was kind of like coming in and then like being like super excited, going down rabbit holes, and then also being like super pissed for lack of a better word of like, you know, what you're uncovering, what you're learning and, and thinking about why is this just now, you know, being introduced or being exposed to at the doctoral level? I've been a practitioner for 15 years at this point and have never been exposed to history as such. Yeah, I think it's really powerful. And one quote that you have from the article hits on exactly <laughs> what you're saying. I just want to read it to you um, and get your thoughts because it it gets into what you're what you were just saying. So this is from the article, quote, an inaccurate view of the past always distorts efforts to make a more just future, end quote. Mm -hmm. I just, that just hits so hard and so mm -hmm. on point. And you're right. Like, why is this now coming about you and at the doctoral level and just how social work education, like you all talk about, perpetuates white supremacy and reinforces it over and over by, mm -hmm. by this whitewashed history. I was hoping yeah. you could speak a little bit about yeah. that. You know, you, when you say that quote, so my husband and I have three small children between the ages of eight and two, and um, I homeschool them. And one of the one of the main reasons that we homeschool them is because of things that we're talking about right now. Um, the idea of when having children and you, you imagine them learning their history, most likely from someone who doesn't look like them. Um, and then learning this distorted view, um, that you know is not accurate, you know, historically, you know, does not 
take into consideration people that represent your culture and how we perceive, even how we perceive our own selves, right? Um, and so when you're looking at even history books from that angle with children, uh, it, it's something that when I was similar to Courtney, when, when I was in the doc, when I, in the midst of coursework in the doctoral program, when we were taking courses and just thinking, you know, it's the same thing that I'm thinking as I'm talking to my children about slavery, right? The, like to, to, to be a black parent and to, to describe to a black child for the first time slavery is the most heartbreaking thing ever. I, I can't even describe the feeling of seeing and their questions. Well, why? Well, why would they, you know, and just all, all of, all of that being there. And, um, and so, uh, so a big thing for me was I really want not just social as for the sake of social, obviously this is focusing on social work history and students, but thinking I, I kind of want this to be like revolutionary in the sense that I think all professions need to do this. I think all professions need to medical professions. Uh, you know, all I, I hope my hope is this is like an interdisciplinary revolution where everybody looks at who are your framers, who are your earliest founders, right? And if you don't have an accurate view of history, as that quote said, then how you're, how you're continuously going into future narratives is going to, to continuously, uh, it's like the foundation's going to be off, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to mm-hmm. continuously build the wrong, the wrong thing. And um, and students of color, my my heart is always sensitive to think, thinking of students of color in educational situations, institutions that are constantly hearing the same messages disseminated to them as if they're the they're the receivers, they're the receivers, and these white sacrificers come into their neighborhoods and help and you know, right, great white hope narratives and you know all these kinds of things and uh, and it's and it's it's the wrong view of history. You know, it's the wrong view of history. And the interesting thing is, you know, Courtney and I on the side, we've discussed even, like I said, how we as people of color know our resiliencies, right? But um, we know these narratives, but it's so interesting that it's, again, because it's not empirically or it's not written down, it's not the focus on the of the written word, right? It's even talking about in the manuscript, um, which is an emphasis on white culture, right? Not, not as if people of color can't write, but historically speaking, the thought, if, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist, even in our, in our professions, those kind of narratives being passed on to you. But people of color know certain things about our histories, know strengths, know achievements, yet when it's not recognized, it's almost like it doesn't really exist. So, um, and in social work, we really have to change disseminating the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think also looking at this is looking at how it shapes our connection to the field and also how it shapes how we practice um, as a practice oriented field. You know, I, I think about how like, yes, I learned about Jane Addams all throughout my MSW program. And yet I, I cannot tell you much about Jane Addams other than her connection to social work. But that's more so from the perspective of like that history doesn't didn't resonate with me. It didn't resonate with me then. It doesn't resonate with, with me now. Therefore, it wasn't something that I held on to. So like that shapes like our foundation, our connection to the field, as well as then if we're learning how to practice based on these things. Um, I've always felt a disconnect there. Like I would say, like I've never like practiced based on textbook or like how, you know, we've, we've been taught, like I've always had to make adjustments, but that's because like how we practice has been shaped by these racist views and perspectives. But that was something that I never made the connection to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you write about 
that in a paper, like a different way to practice. Like I've had former students, you know, be told, um, well, your intervention's not evidence-based, so you're <laughs> not going to pass this assignment, even though the intervention, or maybe it wouldn't even, shouldn't even be called an intervention, the work was what was rooted in the Black community, for example, right? And then also, you know, we've got the licensing exam, which is another example of if you don't do it this very specific way, which is rooted in Eurocentricity and whiteness, Mm -hmm. you don't pass, which then so like there's this conformity Mm -hmm. to this as well. Right. So for like all students, but especially black, brown, indigenous students, but but white students, too, who are learning to do this in a very... Mm-hmm. oppressive way but then for students from those very communities who are like i got into this because i want to help my community but then they're taught to do social work in a way that actually could be harmful yeah right but they're in with their community because they're like black in the black community yet they're like calling to get people's kids taken away and things like that you know right 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 and you're, you're really hitting on how uh, again, the foundation of how um, we're retelling the same history over and over again, we're, we're, we're training, we're teaching, we're instructing, is perpetuating the same problem over and over again. So I think, you know, we could talk about just changing policies and changing, which we need to, because uh, we really need to. We need to change a lot of policies institutionally, because institutional racism really does exist, even if you just change change certain words and names and, you know, um, things things are done that we know at that level um, really hurt BIPOC communities. But how how people groups are communicated about is very significant. And if you're in a field like social work, where majority of students being white are getting trained to work in oftentimes majority BIPOC communities, how they're perceiving them. And I'm, I'm glad that you even use that example of something like child welfare, right? And Dr. Aiken, who's not on the call now, she um, actually worked with her. She's the principal investigator of a, a multi-site federal grant um, doing um, uh, working on racial disproportionality um, studies uh, in child welfare. And, some, and I work with her on that. And some of the things that we, you know, we've discussed is how how social workers are trained to perceive um, people in BIPOC communities, right? And looking at things, doing institutional analyses where you look at things, where you actually look at the notes and how they're trained to write notes about BIPOC communities. And one of the things we noticed, for example, was um, oftentimes people of color are perceived as angry, as despondent, as disconnected. And then we would interview some of those actual people that their case notes were on. And those people would say things like, I didn't want to seem angry because then I wouldn't get my kids back. Mm. Right. I didn't want to perceive so too much emotions because then it would be perceived a certain way. So all seeing all those disconnects in terms of perception is huge. We're not robots. Let's be honest. This, this whole facade of objectivity and I appreciate and I think that there's great things. I'm doing a quantitative dissertation. I appreciate those sides of empirical studies and analyses, yet we're not robots. You know, we and I think that even Courtney and I have had conversation about the moving towards professionalization. Mm-hmm. I think we have to really have that. We have to talk about that. Courtney has some really good ideas, too, or well, perspectives theoretically, because I think we need to talk about how this um when you have a field that's focused on social justice in a lot of ways, but we're trying to make status quo ranks professionally, 
we're, we're, it's almost like you're contending against two worlds, right? So, yeah, there's there's a lot that could be <laughs> that could be said there. <laughs> um, I don't even know where to start, but I mean, yeah, our system, our system, even within the university system, is still set up in that way, and it's like it's a push and pull, oftentimes, and. Like Clay just said, while I understand, I'm you know I can go along the spectrum of you know understanding like you know quantitative empirical work to transformative work, um, but it's like how do we do all of it and consider all instead of just being mm-hmm. you know blinders on focused in this one area and it has to look like this 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 focus on it has to look like this it, um this is how we quantify it this is how we know it's true this is how it's evidence but it's all like you it's it's impossible to consider one way to show something as evidence or to consider something as true. Uh, so we put ourselves in this box of like, yes, we know this and, but it has to look like this or it has to meet these standards. Um, and it, it, it just puts us right back in that, that racist white supremacy mindset. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I want to throw something out to both of you. Um, I had written this to you, but I'm going to, try to work my way through this thinking and get your thoughts on it because even before reading your article and this is part of why like I just am so excited about your article and like sharing it with the world you know like as you've shown in the article the whitewashed history of social work defines who is a social worker who was part of social work's beginnings and these are typically white folks And black people who were doing this work have been excluded from this dominant history, the mainstream history, which is typically what's taught in social work programs, like what we're talking about and what you write about. Um, Not all, right? But like most. And, you know, folks ranging from Eugene Kinkle Jones to the Black Panther Party. Um, And even concepts like empowerment that were developed by black people get talked about in social work education without giving credit. Like it's just this accepted concept now that um, Mm -hmm. doesn't get credited back to folks like Barbara Solomon. Um, Like I heard about empowerment a lot, but I never heard about Barbara Solomon, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, in all of my education. So you, you know, like I've said, you've covered this so well in the article and it's really phenomenal. So my, so this question that I've, been wrestling with and i guess this is like a theoretical thing but isn't so much is right that we (laughs) talk about um and uh justin hardy and i were actually having like a talk about this is like you know when we say mainstream social work right like is that white social work or is me even thinking that rooted in this whitewash like All of this black, brown, and indigenous social work that's been excluded and covered up. So what I'm even thinking is social work is actually those folks, but I'm thinking of it as mainstream white social work because that's what it's talked about as. I don't know if that's totally making sense, but that's just something I've been thinking about. And your article really like brought all that to the surface because... What is social work? Whose is whose social work is this? I guess mm-hmm. is what I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Courtney, go ahead. You want to say something? Go ahead. 
I, I mean, it's a great and an interesting question and um, not necessarily sure how to answer it. Right. I think there's this space that like the social work that we have traditionally learned um, has been white social work. So like considering that, um, that I wouldn't say that that is social work, but that is the social work that we have learned. And, and maybe that's the language um, to use. I don't know. But there's so many there's so much missing from what we've learned. I think that's the important part to capture. It's, it's like a yes. And like, yes, this has been a part of social work history. And there has been so much left out of social work history. Uh, so it's that those missing truths, those missing pieces that we have to incorporate right. in order to fully understand what social work is and what it can look like. Thinking about like when you going back to like empowerment, um, there's pieces of that of like what's considered empowerment. So there's pieces when we talk about like BIPOC communities, um, empowerment is dismissed because it looks different. Strengths, you know, is dismissed because it looks different. So we have significant pieces. So um, I would say it's based on my experience. None of us have a full broad spectrum education or understanding of social work history, what it is and what it could look like. Hmm. I'm going I'm to go even further with that because I think that what it makes me think about is I, I think theoretically, and I'm getting ready to write something surrounding um, all these concepts of deconstruction and uh, versus reformation, right? Because like we have a lot of areas in social work where people are talking and even criminal justice, you know, where people are talking about defunding, you know, let's get rid of, let's dismantle. Same thing. Like, I don't know if you heard of the up end movement with child welfare, like let's just get rid of it versus some people are like, let's reform. And so I'm, I'm going to be exploring that and writing on something on that um, pretty soon. And just both sides of those thoughts. Right. And it kind of makes me think of this conversation right now, because I feel like the feeling is, well, if this is this white social work, then like, let's just get rid of it and start something else. Right. And then, or is it, are we kind of like, like, you know, looking at both ends and let's kind of find a way forward and accept that this is the past and, you know, this is what the future needs to look like and let's just incorporate. And I, and I think, you know, um, I don't have an answer to that, but I think about it a lot. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, what the biggest piece is missing is BIPOC voices in the conversation period. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the theoretical conversations, the philosophical conversations that oftentimes whatever direction we take in thinking of what social work should look like, how we talk about the history, how we talk about the future, we have to have BIPOC voices at those tables and be really mostly some of the dominant voices at those tables. Right. And so Whatever direction that that's my thought, that's kind of like my interjection in the whole thing, because I think oftentimes well-meaning people, whatever different motivations, but if you don't have the people in the communities that were, that had experienced the marginalization and the harm at the table to talk about it, you're going to just keep chasing your tail, right? And it's not going to be any picture, I think, of what a lot of us want moving forward for the future. I think there's also a piece to add to that. It's like acceptance without question. It's like, yes, those mm. people need to be at the table and you need to accept their experiences, their truths without question. That's because right. oftentimes you have those people at the table and then you want to question their experiences. You want to question their truths. You want to ask right. for proof 
of that. And it's like, you don't get to do that. And so there, that also leads us in this space of, well, am I going to actually join this table if all I have to do is continue to have to prove myself? So there's that piece mm-hmm. of it too. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's so important, which is why I wanted you both to be on here to elevate this conversation. I guess, you know, what the article really made me think about is maybe even though I cha- like I I think critically of this history and of social work, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way, you know, and that's what I was kind of getting at because mm-hmm. the strengths perspective that I was taught, the empowerment model, even though there are problems with the pr- actual implementation and practice of it, those come from black folks, right? There's perspectives that come from indigenous folks that have been stolen. Like, I don't even want to say co-opted, straight up stolen Mm -hmm. and then packaged, taught by white folks, packaged as mainstream social work. And so when I read it, I was like, oh, I, you know, it was very eye-opening for me where I'm like, I've got this history. Like, even though I've said, and I teach about the Black Panthers and say, I don't know if they'd consider themselves social workers because they probably had some issues with social work, but they were doing community-based, like they were doing the work that should be getting done, right? Right. And they were destroyed for it, you know? So I like that idea of like just the whole way you approach this, like if we don't have an accurate history, everything we build on top of that is going to be problematic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's even this space of like going back to like people don't get to tell white people don't get to tell communities of color how these things should look or how these things should be implemented. Like going back to, you know, you speaking about the Black Panthers, like the history that is taught in the U.S. about the Black Panthers Mm -hmm. is always negative. It is always negative comments, negative connotation, negative history. But the fact is, they, like you said, they were doing social work. They were protecting their communities. They were providing services to their community. Um, But that part is never talked about. Like, you really have to do Mm -hmm. your own education and research to even begin to understand that that's what was going on. Um, Mm -hmm. But in coming from KU, who, you know, who has some significant scholars that have contributed to, you know, social work. Uh, we have to step back and, and question that. We've had to do that as a school and, and think about that, talking about strengths perspective and, and the roots and foundations of that and being called out on, you know, hmm, let's really think critically about the strengths perspective and how it's taught and how it's communicated. Yeah, 100%. So a couple folks that you talk about in the article that I was hoping you could share on in your section called The Crowned White Fathers of Social Work, which is just such a great um, (laughs) heading. You talk about W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass and, you know, why they should actually be considered some of the founders of social work. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about um, um, du, Bo- du Bois, and uh, you know, I, I think, I think, and I want to say something before even just highlighting those two people, right? Because I think that this is part of the challenge. We are by nature ethnically a communal people group, and so it's it's hard. 
it almost feels like kind of doing the framework of what's passed down in like white community. Like let's highlight a name, right? When you know that there are like tons of mothers, fathers, grandfathers, you know, and it's part of even African tradition too, in that, in that regard, you know, that, that, sustained communities that fed communities that protected communities that furthered you know provided education and health care and all these things so you know i do want to say say that because i mean i think that you kind of you almost kind of give the names because that's the way that we do things (laughs) but i don't like giving the names you know i i to me it's kind of like why you know i don't know it's kind of like why do we need to give the names? Why does anybody, why, why do we have to be prized for helping people? I just, that in itself, I think is part of the social work kind of like, like, you know, and I, and I get it though. I get that we want to recognize we need to, you know, and and I think that also helps us to pattern ourselves off of great work that people have done. But I just want to put that out there too. You know, that I think, um, we also, if we're going to do this in a reformist way, we want to be mindful that communal people groups, that's not, that's not traditionally how we do it. You know what I mean? So, um, but with that being said, (laughs) but yeah, but that um, was, that's a really important point. And I, know that you get into that in the article too like yeah. like even you know just like what you're saying so i mean i'll leave it up to you because you could talk about just that work in general not necessarily mm-hmm. naming names yeah. if that's what you feel better yeah. or, you know more in line with um but like that kind of work and how that work wasn't even dis- isn't taught you know right. and what that means for social work today yeah well, I, I'll, I'll say that. Well, I like that in terms of that kind of work. Um, is I think that the the people that we referenced, those gentlemen, along with some other women as well, um, that are part of the the Black community um, over history, dur- and intentionally referencing people that that during the time frame that people like Adams, right, were alive. Um, um, or uh, other so- social work, white social work founders, um, the kinds of work that were done were, um, I guess what social work felt the need to, to professionalize, right? Helping and assisting the community with all of the social outcome issues that we talk about today, from healthcare to, you know, um, reformist activity, uh, obviously civil rights, um, activities in terms of, um, continuously petitioning for the rights of, 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 uh, not just black people, but people in general who experience marginalization. Um, we reference people in the article who, um, sacrificed a, a great, a great deal to create institutional systems to educate black communities when they were not allowed into white institutions, um, from healthcare to education to other social frameworks. Um, you know, those are, those are many of the ways in which we highlight the black community. Um, and I think that especially going back to the point of the not focusing on the one, because when you think about it from a communal perspective, nothing can ever be done by just one person. So even just the fact that we do the whole atoms, right? Like who knows who are the nameless people, <laughs> a part of those, you know, that help, that help those people. So I think that that's even some of the ways that we want to reform how we perceive, um, how we perceive social justice work, how we perceive um, social reform and the kind of um, things that we do as a uh, per, uh, within the profession is uh, how can they be done by just one person? It's impossible. 
right? Um, and I think even it's interesting, Courtney talked about uh, kind of coming into a doctoral program. I know for me, looking at the academy, right? And how much is so focused on the individual, like furthering your career as an individual, um, writing things as an individual, uh, presenting things as an individual, all those things, even in the academy from at the doctoral level with social work, we need to really question and challenge um, how we're doing all of these things even how it trickles down to as we're teaching students to look at our history. So I think it has an effect in all, in, in all these ways. I think too, like another reason that to be kind of cognizant to um, with identifying individuals is like, even within that um, the individuals who are often identified are people who have been okayed by white people. Yeah, and that's so, socially acceptable you know, to white people. Yeah, yeah. So these are the people that, you know, we have identified that it's okay for you to talk about or for it's okay for you to reference, but not these other people. And so especially mm-hmm. thinking about, like, the nameless people or the people who did the work and it looks differently. Like, I am a person who you know, often talks about, like, the debate between, like, you know, Dr. King and Malcolm X. You know, Dr. King is has been portrayed as or accepted as, you know, more socially desirable versus a Malcolm X who did a lot of great work in the community as well. Um, so it's like even considering that, like, we have to be careful because, we you know, to not just talk about individuals who have been socially accepted by white people. Okay. Yeah, because there's also, you know, um, patriarchy, you know, perspective, you know, just just even how women were perceived at those times. So, you know, whether a male would be more folk, more uh, easily accepted at a table than a female, a black female at that time. And just all all those things are there, you know, when you you talk about that. You know, I I was talking to somebody actually who's not in social work about this and um, and. I, I was this when I was first starting to write, and I remember, you know, just saying like, you know, a person who's a part of the black community. You know, I was asking him, and I was saying, you know, what do you what do you think about this when you think of kind of how social work does this, and you know how the black community does this, and you know, and and what he said was so like just direct, where he was like, we do these things, we just don't call it social work. Like, you know what I mean? It's just, (laughs) you know, we've always done this. We just don't call it social work. He's like, why do we have to call it social work? You know, and just, so I think that that in itself needs to really, again, that's whole, the professionalization and the recognition and the, all those reasons why we want to be able to put this in this box. We got to see, does that, okay, for the sake of making that easier and putting it in a box, does that affect our ability to, uh, to create true social change? to create true social justice. And if it does, then we need to just throw the box away and stop doing it, you know? So I think there's also space too to question like how much of this is intentional, like intentionally left out. And and I say that from the perspective of like in the article, we identified, you know, um, a black man who um, was, as we we're talking about the itch, the struggles and the problems with the professionalization of social work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was also a part of some of the professionalization of social work. And I had never been exposed to him, heard about him until like doing my research for this article. So it's like, e- even in that, as much as we talk about yeah. Jane Adams, Mary Richmond, we have this black man who we can identify was a part of, you know, this work and he's never discussed 
So, I mean, to, to me, there has to be some intention behind leaving out that history. Mm-hmm. It's totally intentional. It's it's so intentional that now it seems not because it's been gone for so long, right? Mm-hmm. That it's become normal um, as if these are like natural processes that happen, kind of like segregation where people are more friends with people who are like them. And it seems like, right, like Eduardo Bonilla Silva talks about that, like this concept of like naturalization, like racism mm-hmm. is like hidden because it's so natural at this Mm -hmm. it's portrayed as natural if that Mm -hmm. makes sense you hear people say things like that too like it's natural to want to be with people that just look like you it's like wow yeah (laughs) actually like really where did we get that from it's like maybe if redlining hadn't happened and we lived in like mixed neighborhoods how about that we'd (laughs) actually not feel that way that we wouldn't and and yeah that is very interesting because of like some of my like religious background and experiences i have been exposed you know to you know people you know multiple multi-ethnic backgrounds, races, etc. Um, and never once have I ever thought about like, oh, just like wanting to be around people who look like me. And I'm, I, I honestly come from a different perspective where sometimes like I miss like what other people notice because I'm like, well, that is normal to me. It is normal for, you know, family to look very different and it not necessarily mean that they're mixed or biracial. It is normal for me to be around people of, you know, different racial ethnic backgrounds um, and interact. I, I don't necessarily think anything of it, but that is not necessarily normal for the rest of the, the U.S. I just want to get back real quick to the Dr. King part because <laughs> <laughs> part of what is, I don't know the right word, I was going to say amazing, but it's not amazing, is how white folks are constantly, you know, misusing his words and leaving out his critique of classism and capitalism and imperialism and war, you know. Yeah. Um, M- many, many speeches are left out. And it's funny uh, that I have a dream speech, of course, like every, you know, but there's a... Um, there is a, I listened to a sermon where somebody was actually played his speech on, it's called, I think it's called Wait. And, uh, and it basically, Dr. King is talking about how the Negro, in his words, the Negroes often told to wait. Every time you want to bring change, wait, wait, right? And so it's like the whole, and it's, it's, it's not at all like this mainstream, Dr. King, we know, right? Like that most people would hear about. I mean, the intensity, the passion, um, the, the drive. It's, it's, it's interesting, but like it's whitewashed. A lot of what we hear from Dr. King is whitewashed, you know? So. I think too with him, it's like the emphasis is like the peaceful, right? Let's be peaceful. Um, and that's the part that they want to emphasize is like, you know, turn the other cheek. Let's be peaceful. And it's like, but you missed other things that he said. And you're like completely missing that. Like a lot of times these things don't warrant a peaceful response. Well, you know, Dr. King also was for someone that was supposed to be so peaceful. He was, why was he on the FBI watch list then? Just like Malcolm X. Like what? maybe he wasn't as peaceful. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe some things he said were, were not, were more radical, you know? So, but how often do you actually hear people talk about him being on the FBI watch list? Yeah. 
<laughs> that's the part that looks like leave that out. Right. Right. Which I think even thinking about our article, thinking about this concept, it makes me think that, you know, uh, a lot of the people in those, in those, though the FBI wasn't constructed at that point, but a lot of the people that would have probably spoken out about social justice would have been, you know, black people would have been on the FBI watch list. Like you wouldn't have been able to, you know, be as radical in some ways about petitioning for the poor, especially, you know, poor BIPOC communities. So, but yeah. He owned guns too. <laughs> MLK owned guns. Yeah. You know, you might get in trouble saying that, Shimon. I don't know. He did. Because <laughs> <laughs> all we hear is like he quotes Gandhi and peace mm-hmm. and right. passive resistance. And you said it, whitewashed. Just like social right. work education. I, I love how you draw that connection right at the beginning of the article of US whitewashed history and what that means and then you know you put social work right in that context i think that's such Mm -hmm. an important connection that often doesn't happen even though it's so like it's so like once you see it it's like well yeah but because i think it's the social justice part of social work that covers this up like it's like that like good white people innocent white people like well, we do this. Like, we already do this. Like, we don't do that. We do this with social work because we're all about social justice. And then you put it, but the U.S. says the same stuff, right? It's like, we're all about liberty and justice. For, I mean, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like we want it to be the same thing. But I mean, I think. I think we have to recognize that it's not because when those things were written, they weren't written for, for BIPOC people. They were talking about liberty and justice for white people. You know, <laughs> those kind of, we, you know, I struggle, I go back and forth with like feminist thought and feminist movement, you know, thinking about that, like original, I shouldn't say not originally in, in its professionalization, for lack of a better word, <laughs> you know, it was rooted in, you know, helping white women. Um, and so it's like, yes, we use that language and we have to recognize historically that that language was not meant for people who look different than the white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. That's what I'm saying. Like social work using that same type of like social justice language, I think covers up the reality of like, who was this really meant for? Mm-hmm. Um, and drawing that parallel to how the u.s started and is still going um because social work came is came out of here but it, but then that makes me think again like what you all are talking about is like <laughs> what is social work and who mm-hmm. has been doing it and who gets credit right that credit right. thing you we, <laughs> yeah but it influences the practice and so i kind of want to make sure we get into that a little bit too of like, you know, so where do we go from here with this? You know, what do people do with this? And, you know, how are you all, what are you all doing and what do you all, you know, what are your recommend recommendations for folks? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple, I'm sure Courtney and I both, you know, kind of go back and forth here with a couple of different remedies. Um, But similar to that discussion, you know, like we just, like we talked about the up, those up end movements or, reform, you know, or defund versus like change, 
institute policies, you know, re- regardless of the direction that's taken, um, a first number one step, I think BIPOC people have to be part of uh, driving the conversation, leading the conversation. Um, so that's the first step. And so when I say that, I mean, so when you have, practically speaking at the ground level, when you have social work educators, social work practitioners that are making policies, making decisions, and they're standing there, you know, forming, you know, everybody scrambling to do their DEI committees now and, you know, whatever, you know, it's like, are are there, do you have BIPOC people who are part of those conversations? You know what I mean? Like, I think it's it's cute, you know, to have all the committees, everyone's forming. But that's the reality. If you don't have those people there, um, you know, I, I don't know how I don't see how that's going to be effective. And then um, and again, like Courtney kind of said, like and then when those people are sharing things, is that going to be well, we need to show studies, show evidence where that's empirically te- empirically tested that we should do this and take this step and do that. And, you know, who has supported that? with evidence that that will be effective. Um, and so uh, we have to be mindful of the ways in which we're using, if we want to bring racial related social justice and change, are we going to use white tools to do it? Like uh, how, how, how is that, you know? And then I think when we do use white tools to do it, really it's a, it's a, it's a, this facade that's really just, we're just trying to feel better about what we're doing. You know, we're not really trying to bring change. So um, I'd say that's one of the first steps in terms of, of change. And then I would say even for social work educators who might listen to this is that more, I know, I know when you're constructing your syllabi and you're getting all of your materials together, it's, it might, it is easier to just pull on the resources that are ready, readily available for you that might just be white, his, white framers historically or white, white uh, sources, articles, you know, but um, do the work and, get the BIPOC voices in, in the conversations. So when you're giving and you're referencing, uh, you know, people to your students in the syllabi and you're in your core things too, you know, you have people of color that are, that are a part of talking about the history and conversations like this that are challenging the history. So those will be my main two right now. I think to add on to your last point, Kalechi, too, is being mindful that sometimes the knowledge and the education doesn't look like or that we need to include doesn't look like what we consider normal, like educational tools. So that may mean that this may not be, you know, an empirical or theoretical like article that you find in a journal, like recognizing that knowledge and dissemination for these communities looks a lot different and it doesn't make it less evidence-based. And so going outside those traditional methods of knowledge in dissemination and education is going to be important. Um, I also think stepping back and like really doing a lot of self-critique and reflection. There's a very real space in this that I also am completely open and honest with that despite the fact that I am a black woman, I am a black woman born and raised in America. And that means that I perpetuate and have perpetuated a lot of these things because that is how I have learned. And so there's a lot of self-work that has to be done uh, to recognize these things, to challenge, to critique these systems, who we are, how we practice, um, and being okay with like saying that, like, yes, this is how we've done it. 
but it doesn't have to be done like that anymore. It doesn't have to look like that or, and it can look like this also. Um, so really like taking a step back and looking at how are we really like projecting, um, these same things that we're saying that are not healthy or not right or not good. That work has to be done and not saying the buts or, you know, um, with that. Yeah. I'm so glad you talked about that self critique. I, I just know for me, there's like so much unlearning that I've been doing the past number of years and it keep you know, it just keeps going deeper. It's like every time I feel like I figured something out, <laughs> there's like a hundred more feet deep. I got to go. Yeah. And then behind that, there's like a thousand feet that I didn't even know that was there yet. Right. Cause I can't mm-hmm. even see it yet till I unlearned all those things that got me to be able to see something that I couldn't even see, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a very real blind spot too. I know when I teach, like it doesn't matter what class I'm teaching, I always have um, discussed like values and ethics, but I have a really big pet peeve uh, because students always, you know, want to discuss and incorporate like the social work code of ethics when we talk about values and ethics. And I'm like, yeah, no, put that away because that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your personal values and ethics because we forget that those are present no matter what. And I don't care what you tell me about the social work values and ethics. (laughs) At the end of the day, you know, you're going to lean on your personal values and ethics, whether you realize it or not. So let's talk about those and what those look like in your practice, how those you know, relate to work with or not work with our professional code of ethics, as well as how are our professional code of ethics, not a hundred percent right and need to be critiqued. So totally. it's, it's like, a, are, are all you trying to say we things. can't be objective, Courtney? I can't be no, we definitely cannot be objective at all <laughs> in our practice, no matter what we think or believe about that. You know, and I talk a lot about too, like, you know, dual relationships, you know, how that is talked about in our code of ethics. And I'm like, yeah, my thought about that does not align at all with our code of ethics, because when we're talking about communities of color, communal communities, um, small communities, like there's going to be dual relationships. And yes, there are things that we need to know and how to navigate those things appropriately. But we cannot say that there just cannot be dual relationships. It is not possible when we talk about these kind of communities. Yeah, I think you're you're really hitting the nail on that. Like in turn, in terms of, I've had experience too where I've had actually had more experience teaching um, in bipoc communities right now than I have like where we are in the Midwest and predominantly white settings, institutionals institutions. Um, and so it's interesting for me because until Courtney said that, I just started to think about my conversations predominantly teaching human services classes for social work and counseling amongst black students um, in Philadelphia versus like now here in Kansas. And, um, and uh, it's, it's interesting because I'm just now thinking about, I didn't have certain conversations that I have about DEI and you know what I'm saying? Like I was here in, you know, in Philadelphia years ago, I was working and talking to people who were going to be working directly with people that were, uh, BIPOC communities in BIPOC communities. And, um, not to say that obviously we don't have those biases, like you just said, even though we're people of color, we still are entrenched in a racist system and, and have lenses that we have to even challenge ourselves. But it is, it is an interesting thing when you talk about, uh, knowing that a white student is going to be 
working with communities of color and the potential damage they could do um, in terms of the harm they can do. Um, I think it's, it's a very, it's a very real reality. And so this whole facade of objectivity, um, <laughs> I mean, I, it, I, I'm just thinking, I don't even think that I talked about it as much in teaching communities of color versus with white communities, because there is a facade in, in white communities that you can be objective professionally. Doctors can be objective and social workers can be, ob- teachers can be objective like this, you know, um, it's, it's interesting culturally. I didn't, I didn't think about that till right now, but you really have to challenge and dismantle that mentality that of objectivity. It's almost like this badge of honor as if, I professionally can be objective <laughs> when I go into a scenario and I, I see a child that is in need and I'm doing a removal. I'm just, wow. This, yeah. Yeah. This whole, um, that phrase, like check your bias at the door. I'm just like, what? <laughs> like what? <laughs> like what? And I, and mm. I actually, something I have in like this workshop I do is questions that like we actually need to ask ourselves, and I'm saying at least for white social workers, because I don't have the confidence that folks have the level of self-awareness to see when harm is being done. And so there almost needs to be like a checklist of like, who is being harmed? Like, who is this helping? Who is this hurting? You know, like critical race theory has this concept of like, look to the bottom, which I know maybe is not the best terminology, but it it is like, look at who's the most oppressed. Is this helping to liberate or is this reinforcing oppression, you know? And (laughs) I think those things need to be more taught rather than just be self-aware, like, you know, write a journal and reflect (laughs) on yourself. Cause it's like, how do I know? Like, I know I've taught in ways that have been harmful. Like I can admit that. Like I can say that I know that I know where that came from. You know, I know how I learned it. I know how I don't do it anymore. And we need to have, um, we need to be able to have those conversations. Yeah. It is, it is so hard to like accept change in systems, you know, thinking about like we can, ha- and I think that's another thing as well. It's like we can have conversations all day. What is the action? What is the mm-hmm. change? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes that looks like changing the way we do things, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that that's what we're comfortable with. And that's how things have been done. Like I, you know, utilize my teaching. We, uh, we, it's become a topic of conversation more and more, but like an ungrading approach. And I think it's more from a, you know, a socially just perspective and people will like, like, I don't know how to do that. Or, um, that's uncomfortable for them, but, but it's just like, why do you have to stay in this system? What, what are you, are you really getting what you need to out of just assigning a grade? Like mm-hmm. those kind of things. It's like people can't begin to think outside of what they know and, and what's comfortable to them. You know, one thing you talked about was as faculty, you're, you know, creating syllabi and what's readily available. But this, this double issue of advances, I mean, it's open access. There is enough in that double issue <laughs> to completely redo and really get a incredible start on yeah. and you know cuz then you go into like all the references from each of those articles and you've you've got enough for years i mean yeah. you got enough in there <laughs> yeah if you want to do the work you got enough yeah yeah like no excuses like it's there like 
it's it's there for those who want to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So just as we're getting closer um, to wrapping things up, you know, just since you both how I you know you're on here with this platform and you've written this article and I know you're doing all sorts of other like amazing work you know I'm just kind of wondering how what you want to put out there for the for the rest of the time you know use this space to get across any message you think needs to get across that's a hard one um you can you can go first Courtney I gotta gather my thoughts here yeah um so I, I will first, I think I would just like to say that like this experience um, with writing this article, getting it published and just the um, response to it has, has been great. I think I didn't necessarily expect that. Um, so it, it that gives me some warm and fuzzy feelings <laughs> that it is being received. It is being disseminated. I have a really, um, I struggle sometimes with dissemination and how things are disseminated. So, um, I like that also too, that we're, um, it's getting disseminated in more non-traditional ways, such as this podcast. Um, so I, I think for me, it's kind of like thinking about those things as we're talking about how, uh, history of social work has been whitewashed and history in the U.S. has been whitewashed, thinking about how we can do things differently, not being stuck in the same old ways, um, but really just taking time and energy um, to do this work and really reflecting on what that even means or looks like considering that um, when you talk about, like you, you mentioned uh, you, the statement earlier, believing your biases at the door. Uh, we have to recognize that a lot of times we don't even rec- know what those biases are, that they're present. And so it takes a, a lot of energy to do, to start there. Yeah. I, I think um, for me, there's a lot of things swimming in my head, but I know that one of the pushbacks I get sometimes from white students is, um, you know, well, especially things like critical race theory. We all know how controversial that has been <laughs> in a lot of different circles. And, you know, we're in Kansas, so, you know. So, but the reality is that um, that uh, I there has to be an acknowledgement that, yes, this is a very daunting task, what we're talking about, challenging racism, um, um, people even having to, re- you know, reassess how their history has damaged other people, right? Because um, there are some ways in which these kinds of conversations, you know, bring that up, because that's been the, the major narrative kind of in the news is, you know, Terry, we, we talked about this in another um uh, when we did a presentation on this article um, at a social work conference, that some of the relics of, of white supremacy are not just, you know, the statues of slave owners that are all over this country um, that need to be torn down. <laughs> um, they're not just those things or Confederate flags. You know, they are in our history books, and um, and I and we have to realize that it is a deep work, um, and but. Things, things that are worth fighting for like this are deep things. They're hard things. And we need to stop kind of, you know, I, I think that I see students 
a lot of fragility comes out when it comes to, to these kinds of kind of conversations where it's like, this is too difficult, or why do we have to do that? Why do we have to look at this? Why do you know? Let's let's move forward, right? Again, like that's why the quote is in there that I wrote. You know, because you can't move forward if you're constantly telling these same narratives of the past. If you're constantly, if my kids are going past the statue at a courthouse in in Kansas with it, you know, as if this person is a hero, you know, then um, that that's consistently reinforcing something that is not going to create an equitable future for us. And so um, we have to do those hard things for the sake of what we're, what we're supposedly saying we all want. Now, I'd rather people just be real and say they want power to be a certain way. But <laughs> if we're going to say we all want it to be this way, if we're going to say we want social justice in this direction, you know, then we have to do the work. We have to do the hard things. We have to, for educators, for practitioners, we have to look at what we're saying, disseminating, sharing, talking about. Um, and, you know, and I just want to say, in this doing the work, how it can be difficult for people, but I don't think it's more hard. I don't think it's harder than being black. I don't. <laughs> you know, what I'm, I just have to be honest about that. I don't think it's harder than being black. I, I don't. I don't think that reviewing your syllabus and looking at the way you do your practice and social work. I don't think so. I don't. I, I just have. I don't think it's harder than being in an indigenous community, and you know. So that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> I, I think bring, being present and igni- like this is going to be uncomfortable no matter what it's going to be uncomfortable and just like leaning into that discomfort and being present in it you know as we, we talked about like you know the the boom of like DEI committees and DEI work but my experience with those is that like we're talking about like racism racial equity um supremacy, privilege, all of those things. And what I, my experience has been is that those committees don't address that work. Um, when it comes, you know, they're comfortable because we're talking about who's on those committees, who's leading, le- leading those committees. They're comfortable addressing, um, social justice issues that also impact white people. They are not comfortable addressing social justice issues such as racism that do not impact white people. That is still very much a thing to this day. I've left committees for that reason. And so like stepping back and doing that work, like are you only comfortable addressing issues, social justice issues that impact white people? Because that's what happens a lot. Yeah. I've overwhelmingly heard from folks, especially, you know, black women that, they're just, they've had it with these committees and a lot have left, you know, cause it's people aren't listening. White people aren't listening. And, you know, I think just something that needs to be said, which you all were talking about earlier is that like there's obviously, you know, like Malcolm X said it. Um, Garland Jaggers, who was one of the founders of NABSW said it. Um, a recent guest of mine who's a former Black Panther, Black Liberation Army member, Jaleel Mutakim, said it, you know, like racism was created by white people. So white people have to be the ones to eradicate it. I don't know if that's going to happen, but there's also got to be times where white people, especially faculty, um, since we are focused more on social work education with this, like need to get out of the way, like just get out of the way, like, mm. You've been on the committee, like, yeah, there's work that needs to get done. So if folks want you to do that work, okay, cool. But like, otherwise, like, stop being a barrier to this Mm -hmm. happening. 
you know, just like stop. You, you made a good point there too, though, about, you know, where this was created and, um, you know, I, there, the space for the collaborative ev- collaborative effort, you know, is there in terms of remedies and talking with as, as BIPOC people want to share because they shouldn't, it shouldn't be expected just because you're black that you need to, I'm just sharing, we went to, we just came back from a social work conference and someone had asked me like, well, I'm sure you're on the DEI committee at your school. And I was like, why? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> and I told them, I said, and I said, and I went to another session and um, they were talking about, it was a, a school that is doing a lot of DEI work and they were giving examples of how social work communities, uh, programs across, you know, can can pattern the way they're doing it. And they were saying a lot of the black faculty coming together really enjoy this. And, and I was like, well, what about the faculty who don't enjoy it? Like what, you know, like, let's have real conversations about this. You know what I mean? Like, um, because, you know, the exhaustion, the fatigue that can come with this when you live this and you teach about it and you talk about it, it's real. And so I think even we got we want to be careful about the, putting these unrealistic expectations on even black faculty and other people who can come in and speak and share and do things, whether they want to do it, how long they want to do it, how they want to be compensated for it. First of all, you know, um, all those things need to be there, you know, cause, and that was my thing, similar to the quote you said, I was like, I didn't create racism. So I'm not going to sit on every DEI committee. That's just not how I want to expend my academic energies all the time. I might write something about it sometimes. I might, you know, cause, and then there's the reality again, this is where we need to move from the stoic objective this hurts you know what i'm saying like this is not i have black children i have a black son i have a black husband this is not just a like um the philosophical conversation to have another academic genre about you know um and and i this might sound controversial too i think also i we want to be mindful of how we're taxing black faculty to speak on racial issues, because I think also there are topics that black faculty can speak about too, because of some of our experiences internationally, there are theoretical concepts that I think a lot of BIPOC voices could speak a lot to as we do quantitative and qualitative studies too. But I think there's expectations Mm -hmm. around this area, which if someone chooses to great, because I think again, there's a wealth of information there and, and, and they can do that. But I think we also want to be careful even how we, how, how we categorize and just, just a lot of that's there. We want to give agency to BIPOC faculty, um, practitioners to do what they, cause I, we, uh, I appreciate Dr. Aiken. She's on this call, but she meant she, she actually does something even in a groups we do called race caucuses where when we discuss and we actually do, uh, in our research team meetings, we actually read, articles on the characteristics of white supremacy and talk about how we can decolonize how we do research. And we read articles on how we can uh, challenge racism in the system that we work in, in social work. And, uh, and then we talk about it. But sometimes we also do race caucuses where we have just the white people get together on the Zoom calls and just the black people because there's the fatigue is real to have to carry the conversation. Sometimes you don't want to say anything. Sometimes you don't have anything to, you know, all that there's, there's, it's complicated. It's very complicated. We have to sit with that complication and be okay with that as well. 
So even I say that also for, I'm, I'm conscious of when there's BIPOC students, when I'm teaching and there's black students who might not want to share or do want to share or the, it's, it's, it's very complicated what they share, where it's personal, where it's professional, where it's experience. Um, we have, we want to be, be, be conscious of that as well for students who are, are going to be listening to these kind of things and having conversations too. Definitely. Thanks so much for saying all that. And I feel like we could keep this going. <laughs> like there's so much. Um, I want to thank you both for taking the time to come on here, you know, talk about your article and so much more um, about teaching, social work, community work. Um, I want to thank you all for doing the work. And also, you know, I hope folks will read the article and get deeper into this work. Thank you so much for having us and um, doing your part and doing the work as well. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.